Well, exciting morning for us Max here at church so far. The sink in that bathroom fell on Levi, and then I uh, said hello to a door. So if you notice a crack in my head, it's because I turned around and there was a door there that wasn't there before, I'm sure. But let's uh, open up with a word of prayer and uh, give thanks to God for the opportunity we have to be together. Isaiah is on holiday, so uh, our vacation, so um, hopefully he's enjoying himself. Uh, But we're going to talk a little today. I'm excited for this opportunity to talk about the church. But let's pray. Father, we need you. Every second we need you. We can't even, Lord, uh, walk without you sustaining us. We can't breathe without you sustaining us. We're we're just overwhelmingly uh, grateful, even looking back to this past week, of how you uh, just poured out your kindness upon us and showed us patience. We broke your law so many times in our heart. Uh, We didn't love you with all of our heart. We didn't love our neighbor as ourself over and over and over again, even though we know that's right. We agree with it, but we've uh, just, Lord, disobeyed you too often, and yet you have shown us mercy after mercy after mercy, and we know that it's because of Christ, and so we come to you in Christ today. We come to you Uh, really grabbing hold of uh, the righteousness that's provided to us through Christ with both hands. That is ours. We are are your children. You do love us because of Christ. And uh, we ask that your spirit would meet with us. We need to hear from you. We need our our values to be changed by you. We uh, We want to be people whose lives just shine. We want to be a church who is healthy and um shows a different kind of community and that, uh, Lord, is proclaiming your gospel with everything we have. And so uh, we just ask that you would even use this morning to uh, help us take one more step closer to uh, being that. And uh, we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, I want us to uh, think a little bit together today about the responsibilities of a church member. So We're going to talk a little bit about your job. What is God uh, calling you as a church member to do? And I want to uh, talk about this for a number of different reasons. Um, One reason is we just came back from uh, the weekender about a month ago, and the weekender was a a trip a couple of the elders and I got to take to Washington, D.C. and visit uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which was really a privilege for us, and uh, thankful for what God's doing in that church, and a reminder to me of just the privilege of being part of a healthy church, and uh, there were lots of things that uh, we were encouraged by and learned, but one of the things that I came back uh, thinking a little bit about is just uh, all that's involved in a church being healthy, and uh, specifically uh, that a healthy church is not just characterized by uh, good leaders, but it's also characterized by uh, members who really understand their responsibilities and uh, who are seeking to fulfill those responsibilities. So that's one reason I want to talk about this. Uh, Another reason is because we just did this recent series on leadership, church leadership, and I was thinking that's good to talk about church leadership. But there's more to a church than just uh, elders and deacons, for sure. And uh, sometimes we can talk so much about the importance of leadership, I think, that we uh, forget that's just part of how a local church functions. And uh, really, uh, most of the letters of the New Testament weren't written 
specifically to the pastors or to the, uh, to the deacons. Most of the letters of the New Testament were actually written to the churches, and so we want to emphasize the importance of just being a member of a church. Also uh, want to talk about the job of a church membership because I think sometimes when uh, I'm thinking about the church in particular and I'm thinking about, okay, how do we really thrive? How do we live our life out as a church? And how do we you know, get sort of things like discipleship and hospitality going? I often think about structures that we need to put in place like, okay, let's, let's do this and then we can become uh, a church that's really discipling one another. But uh, we don't really, the best way to fix problems is not really so much with structures, actually, but developing more of a culture. Those structures are just like a, a help, an aid. Really what we, what we want are members who are fulfilling their responsibilities to the point where you don't even really need many of the structures. It's like the trellis and the vine. We, the vine's what's important more than the trellis. Uh, also, I want to talk about the responsibilities of church members. Just This is on my heart. I was talking to an older man recently who was a pastor for a long time, and uh, now he's not a pastor. He's not able to be an elder, uh, and uh, he's kind of feeling like, uh, what do I do now that I'm not an elder? You know, he was an elder for so long, and so he feels like, oh my goodness, I, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not doing anything now that I'm not uh, an elder, and I was uh, saying to him that uh, that actually, that I mean, it's it was a great privilege to be an elder, but don't minimize the privilege of being a church member either. And that um, he has a great uh, he has a great opportunity to be a faithful church member uh, and can accomplish a lot for Jesus by being that. And then I wanted to talk about. Uh, our responsibilities as church members, just because I think it would be frustrating if you didn't know what your responsibility was. So any job that you go to, if you show up and you're like, uh, what do I do? Actually, I think I have um, one of my family members is going to a job and she doesn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of people giving her help, knowing exactly what to do, and that is frustrating. And so uh, if we're going to be... Uh, faithful church members, it helps to think through, okay, what does that look like? I saw a, a recent book, the title was Don't Fire Your Church Members, which is a, a funny title, but I like the premise, which is that uh, as church members, you have a job. And if you have a job, it's important that you think about what that job is. And so I want to spend some time uh, interacting with an article written by uh, someone named John Owen, and so uh, he was a Puritan who wrote a long time ago. And I appreciate a lot of what he wrote because uh, he summarizes our responsibilities as members of a church, and it's just so full of scripture. It's not much John Owen, actually. It's more scripture. But he starts with an overarching summarizing responsibility. So if you had to summarize the responsibility of a church member in one command, how would you do it? How would you summarize the responsibility of a church member in one command without looking down at your sheet? Nice try, Mrs. Uh. What's that? Abide in, Abide in Christ. That's a great way to, to say it. Abide in Christ and you'll bear much fruit. Whenever I want to bear fruit, I think, okay, what do I do? Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ, Josh. 
What else? What's another way you would summarize the responsibility of a church member? Show up. Show up. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. That's definitely a, an important start. Make disciples, yeah. Uh, go and make disciples. That's how Jesus puts our responsibility. But one word I would use would be the word love. So our main job is to love. And uh, we know that, I think. But let's uh, take a minute to just feel how important this responsibility is by noticing how strongly this is expressed in Scripture. So, uh, Francis, would you read for us uh, John 15? Verse 12. Hugo, would you read for us John 13, 34, and 35? Now, if, you, if I do all this and you forget what scriptures I said, that's normal in our family devotions too, so you can just ask again. But John 15, 12, Francis, John 13, 34, and 35. Hugo, um, let's see, this side. Matt Lee, will you read for us Romans 13, 8 through 10? Somebody from the back. Uh, Will Lau, will you read for us Matthew 22, 37 through 40? Uh, Joshua Feaster, will you read for us Galatians 5, 6? All right, I actually have more, uh, but we'll, we'll go with those. Start with Francis. So uh, love is a command from Jesus. John 13, 34 and 35. Excellent. So uh, we've been commanded to love. What kind of love? Love like Christ. And uh, this is how people will know that we actually are followers of Christ. Romans 13, 8 through 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So that's pretty big. Paul uh, looks back at the law of God and says, you know what? What sums it all up? Simple. Love. And don't owe anyone anything except love. Matthew 22. 37 to 40. Matthew, hopefully. Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Again, when Jesus is asked to summarize the greatest commandments, he summarizes them as love God, love your neighbor. Uh, Josh Feaster. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Yeah, so he's... Paul's saying, you know what counts? Faith working through love. Uh, Colossians 3, 14, Andrew. And then um, 1 Timothy 1, 5, John. <laughs> Sorry, I got to make you work. Hopefully you have a, yeah, there you go. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I love that, above all. So Paul's just described a bunch of great characteristics, but then he summarizes. He's like, above all, put on love. Uh, up here, 1 Timothy 1.5. 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's talking to Timothy there, and he says, you know uh, why we're teaching what we're teaching? It's so that people can actually love one another. And so uh, love, obviously, in the scripture, it would be hard to exaggerate the importance of love. And um, we have to think about what that means because there are lots of wrong definitions of love. But for now, I just want you to think about the importance of love. Listen to how a couple different writers throughout church history have put it. Jerry Bridges, he says, write down either in your imagination or on a sheet of paper a row of zeros. Keep adding zeros until you've filled the whole line on the page. What do they add up to? Uh, exactly nothing. Hopefully that's true in fancy math, but it's definitely true. Even if you were to write a thousands of them, a thousand of them, they would still be nothing. But put a positive number in front of them and they immediately have value. This is the way it is with our gifts and faith and zeal. They are the zeros on the page. Without love, they count for nothing. But put love in front of them and immediately they have value. And just as the number two gives more value to a row of zeros than the number one does, so more and more love can add exponentially greater value to our gifts. Paul Tripp, I'm deeply persuaded that the foundation for people transforming ministry is love. Love is what drove God to send and sacrifice his son. Love led Christ to subject himself to a sinful world and the horrors of the cross. Love is what causes him to seek and save the lost and to persevere until each of his children is transformed into his image. His love will not rest until all his children are at his side in glory. Without it, we have no hope personally, relationally, or eternally. This love is not a band-aid attempting to cope with a cancerous world. It is effective and persevering. It is jealous, intent on owning us without competition. It faces the facts of who we are and how we need to change and simply goes to work. Any hope for the problems we face with our own hearts and with a dark and corrupt world is found in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This love offers hope to anyone willing to confess sin and cry out for transformation. Yet this is where we often get stuck. And this line is so good. We want ministry that doesn't demand love that is, well, so demanding. We don't want to serve others in a way that requires so much personal sacrifice. We would prefer to lob grenades of truth into people's lives rather than lay down our lives for them. But this is exactly what Christ did for us. Can we, be, can we expect to be called to do anything else? The love of Christ is not only the foundation for our personal hope, but our acting out of that love is our only hope for being effective for Christ with others. Sadly, many of us have forgotten this, and we are resounding gong people in symbol-clanging relationships. There's a whole lot of noise, but not much real change. And then Francis Schaeffer. Through the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols intended to show that they're Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, and even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign, a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? At the close of his ministry, Jesus made clear what was to be the distinguishing mark of the Christian until his return. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
So those are, uh, those are just powerful reminders, I think, of the importance of love. And if this is to be the main characteristic of our relationships with one another, it's important for us to think about how do we do that. Your main job as a church member, write it down, love. <laughs> love God, love uh, people. But how do you do that? And so I was going to try to point out 10 specific ways, but probably I'll only get to six. Um, if you're interested, I can give you the article by John Owen uh, to read on your own. But first, you're called to love others by spending time with other church members. And uh, this is probably the most obvious, and it's not one that John Owen actually brought up, but he assumed it, I'm sure. But it seemed too important to me to skip. To do almost anything we're supposed to do as members of a church requires that we spend time with one another. And so uh, first, that would obviously be on Sundays. And one of our uh, most basic responsibilities is just to gather together with other believers for worship on a regular basis. And um, nowadays, people will say, why is that important? Why does it matter? What would you say to someone who said they're a believer, they were a believer, but doesn't see the importance of attending church? Obviously, since you're here, you see the importance. So. What would you say? What would be some reasons you would give to a believer who's like, you know what? I go once a month, and I kind of get my, uh, I get my fill. Yeah, here we go. How can you practice one another? Right. That's, uh, I think, one that's going to come up later. But for sure, there's like a million different commands in the, actually, a hundred different commands in the New Testament that you're not going to be able to practice very well without a commitment to a local church. What else would you say? So we got one. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, so it's a command. It's actually a command. It's not that complicated. And then if you look at that command, the way he describes what it means to fulfill that command, it involves thinking about how to stir others up to love and good works. Um, so there's, there's actual, actually more going on than even just showing up. It's like an intentionality. How about just the word church? What does the word church mean? It, it basically means gathering, right? So it's an assembly. Somebody's written, if church members don't assemble, then there's no church. In other words, gathering together in the name of the Lord Jesus is part of what makes a church a church. Another reason is just uh, almost an implication, you might say, of the gospel. So uh, you open up your Bibles, and you look at the way the authors describe what God's doing in the gospel, and you find out they're talking about so much more than just God saving you as an individual. They're talking instead about him rescuing a people for himself. And so when we think about the gospel, we often think I or me and, that, and what God does for, for me, and that's true, but the Bible assumes we. It assumes if you're a Christian, you're part of an us, because that's a big part of what God's doing in salvation. He's creating a new uh, family, a new community. So somebody said, when we talk about salvation, last week we talked about justification, right? But they've said, we shouldn't just talk about justification, we should also talk about familification. Because just as you're justified when you're saved, you're also familified. Uh, you are made part of God's family, and so you need to apply the truth, just as you need to apply the truth that you're justified to your everyday life, you need to apply the truth that you've been familified to the way you live your life as well. 
uh, as someone has explained, the gospel has a purpose, and that purpose is bigger than just saving you by yourself. It has the purpose of calling out a people for God's own possession. This is a big point of the good news, God forming a people for his glory and the good of the world. So why do we gather? Well, that's even what the word church means. Uh, the gospel, we're living out what God's done in our life, and then we're commanded to gather. And so uh, if you're thinking about your responsibility as a church member, this is a great uh, place to start. Uh, spend time with other church members. Show up. And you might be thinking, when do I do that? Because my life is super busy, and uh, our lives are busy. We're filling up our li- Your life can get filled up. There's so many good things to do. Your life can get so filled up so fast, and I know we don't have a lot of time. But one thing I want to encourage you to continue to do is to maximize the opportunities you have to fulfill your responsibility as a church member as we gather together on Sundays. So take advantage of Sundays. Um, And I know many of you already do that, and that's great. But I'm hoping that one of the characteristics of our church culture would be that we recognize that these are big moments when we gather together as a whole church. And even though we can't be together all the time throughout the week, and there's other things that God's called us to do. We're going to take advantage of this opportunity, and we work hard at thinking, how do I um, do my job best on a Sunday? I wonder, do you have any ideas about how you have really worked at taking advantage of Sundays in the past or even now? What are some ways that a church member can take advantage of a Sunday? Yeah, that's right. Uh, just we're working our way through Luke, and uh, hopefully, you can just be reading through Luke and be thinking and praying for uh, for for what you're going to learn in the passage. I, one thing that um, I've heard one pastor does, and it would be help, more helpful if I make it clear what passage we're preaching next week, so I can work on helping you that way. You could always ask me for sure, but I also can think of ways to help you more that way. But one thing he does is he makes that his devotions throughout the week. So he'll spend all week in that passage and then show up if, he's, if somebody else is preaching or if he's preaching. I've heard of others who do the same after the Sunday, is they'll uh, spend the next week thinking about uh, how to apply that passage to their life. A good sermon gets better on Wednesday than it was on Sunday. Uh, that's usually a mark of a good sermon. On Sunday, you're like, oh, that was pretty good. On Wednesday, when you think about it, you're like, oh, man, there's more to that passage and there's more application than I really even understood when I first heard it. So that's one way. What's another way you can take advantage of a Sunday? You're going to have to help me by going quick because I still have five more to go. Show up early, stay late, get to know people. Right. Yeah, so, and I think that's something our church is really good at, but coming early, uh, uh, taking advantage of opportunities afterwards to talk to people, coming with a plan, maybe even writing down uh, people that you would like to talk to or coming thinking, who can I pray for? And maybe I can uh, intentionally enter into a conversation where I find out how to pray for somebody this week or just asking God. Uh, I. How often when I make a specific prayer request, Lord, please give me a good conversation on Sunday, it's amazing how, how 
often God fulfills that prayer request. Um, any other ideas? Yeah. Yes, right. So uh, don't take for granted um, just what happens on a Sunday, but actually uh, as, a, as a pastor, I need to do this, but as a church member, uh, you need to do this as well. Be praying that the Spirit of God, that the pastor would get out of the way and that the Spirit of God would speak through his word and change you, but also change uh, others. I wonder how often do we pray, Lord, convert somebody this Sunday. Please have somebody come and be absolutely saved, <laughs> uh, totally uh, changed. That's something that I would love for you to pray and that we could expect. God, please do big things through your word every Sunday. Any other ideas about how to take advantage of a Sunday? A great one, another idea is have somebody over to your home Sunday evening. So our church right now, we don't have a, anything much Sunday evening. So to me, that's like boop, great opportunity uh, to just say we're going to carve this out for hospitality. Well, that's first. Spend time, uh, m focus on maximizing your Sundays, but of course that's not the only time. Um, and so as best as you can within the limits of being a human, look for opportunities to spend us unrushed time with other members of the church outside of Sundays as well. You know, sometimes we want to be so efficient in our culture and we really um, worship time that uh, everything we put on fast forward, even relationships, and uh, relationships are usually one thing that are hard to microwave. So fortunately, you can go pretty far in a relationship. The Lord, the Holy Spirit is very kind in that he, we have a bond. We are family already, so we're like far ahead of everybody else. But at the same time, uh, relationships often just are kind of clunky. They take, they're not super efficient. They take you know, standing there together, not knowing what to say, and, you know, sort of, they take a lot of awkward, unrushed time to develop um, good, good relationships. That was one of my favorite parts of the going to the weekend, actually, was uh, being stuck in the airport uh, overnight with Hugh and Tian, because I'm like, wow, who gets to do this? This is like a, you know, sleep on a, uh, one of those benches right near uh, Hugh and Hian. Uh, in the middle, yeah, get woken up and have to walk outside. This is, uh, relationships are built in those moments. Anyway, that's first. Um, second, so first, we need to love. One way we fulfill that responsibility is just by showing up. Second, obviously, we have a responsibility to love others through prayer. And so not only should we prioritize uh, getting together with the church on Sundays and developing unrushed relationships with others, Prioritize praying for other members of the church. And we can think of Paul as such a great example of this because what's he constantly doing? He's like, I'm always praying for you. I just read that this morning in Romans 1 in my devotions. And uh, this is something that he would notice and commend in others. In Colossians 4, he's like Epaphras. He's laboring for you. And the way he's laboring for you is in prayer. And it's a command that he gave the church in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 18. And actually, this is a passage I love if you just look at Ephesians chapter 618 because Ephesians is a book all about ecclesiology, all about the church and about what God's doing in the church. And it's got like this great big start in Ephesians 1 through 3 where he makes it clear that God has these big plans for the church. And then he starts talking about what the church is to do in chapters 4 through 6. 
But how does he end all this? He reminds them, look, it's going to be hard because you're in a spiritual war. (laughs) You're involved in something that's more than just you being a little church there in Ephesus. You're involved in this great big spiritual war, this cosmic war. Um, You have an enemy. And uh, so in light of what God's doing in the church and in light of God's plans for the church and in light of what God's called you to do as a church, in light of the challenge you face as a church, what do you do? Ephesians 6.18, this is how he ends. Pray, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. But there's a lot of all in verse 18. If we ever preach through Ephesians, it's like all, 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 uh, because prayer is so important to the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see in Luke that one of the things Luke's about is not just what God's doing through Jesus, but it's also about what that means for how we follow Jesus in light of what God's doing through Jesus. And in his section where he focuses more specifically on discipleship, he highlights two responsibilities of a disciple and that is listening to God's word and prayer. So what's my job as a church member? It's to love the other members through prayer. Um, what should we be praying for one another? I'm not, I decided I would just give you all that on the study guide because uh, it would be a lot to write down, but it's fun to go through the New Testament and just notice all the different possibilities. So I'll just read the parts in italics, and you can read the rest. But here are some suggestions. Ask God to help others in the church develop deep relationships with other believers, Romans 15, 5. Ask God to increase their confidence in the gospel so that they will just have an overwhelming amount of hope and joy about all the good God's going to do them in the future, Romans 15, verse 13. Ask God to give them discernment and help them not make wrong choices, and specifically that they would not listen to false teachers who are telling them lies, but that they would be able to identify and trust those who are telling them the truth, 2 Corinthians 13, 7. Ask God to open their hearts and minds to understand better what they have waiting for them when Jesus returns, how certain and big all the good God's planning for them really is, and the spiritual power that's at work in their lives presently, Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. Ask God to give them the inner spiritual strength they need to know how much he loves them and that they would be convinced on a daily basis about the fact that Jesus is really for them and that he won't give up on them, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Ask God to help them learn how to love other people better and that God would enable them to love other people more and that they would know how to love other people in a way that's really good for the other person and not in a way that actually does harm to the person they're attempting to love, Philippians 1, 9. Ask God to help them know what he wants for them in every area of their life and that they would become people who know how to take the word of God and apply it to the specific issues they face in day-to-day life, Colossians 1.9. Ask God to enable them to believe and continue to hold on to the gospel and not let go even in the face of all kinds of doubt and persecution. Ask God to encourage them and not to allow the trials and difficulties that come along with serving Christ discourage them too much, and that they would be able to keep on doing the right thing for a long time, even when it's hard, Colossians 4.12. Ask God to help them develop a pattern of fleeing from sin and doing what's right. Specifically, ask God to help them be obedient in every area of their life, First uh, Thessalonians 3. Ask God to enable them to live lives that match up with what they say they believe to be true about Jesus, and that God would help them be fruitful in their work for Christ and that they would make a long-lasting impact as they seek to serve him, 2 Thessalonians 1. 
Ask God to give them an inner peace, a contentment in God's sovereignty that doesn't go up and down, a joy and peace in the middle of everything that comes their way, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. And I'm sure there are more, but one of the, the best ways to love others in the church is by continually praying for them and uh, praying big prayer requests, really, for them, specific prayer requests uh, like, like this. Prayer is a, it's a great ministry, first of all, because it's uh, so faith-related, right? Like you sitting down by yourself in the morning, praying for other members of the church. Who knows about that? Just you and God. And maybe your little kids, if they're running around. But just you and God. And so praying for other members of the church, I think, is such a beautiful ministry because it's, it's a demonstration of just absolute faith that God hears and that he's good. There's a lot of other things you can do as a church member that people see, and so you still need to do them, and, and, and it's a demonstration of faith, but you kind of have to fight sometimes for it to be faith because you're you know, maybe getting something from it in terms of the approval of others. But prayer is not, not one that you get a lot of pats on the back for because nobody knows that you're doing it. And yet all that God does through prayer, uh, as we look at the scriptures, the effective prayer of a righteous man is, accomplishes much. I, and there's some mystery to it, but I, we were even going through the, in the Bible project, it's just this great section in Exodus 32 where God's like, I'm going to, I want to wipe them out and start with you again, Moses. And then what does Moses do? He intercedes on behalf of the people three times with great big prayers, actually, for God's glory. And I was just thinking this week, yeah, I, I can't always explain all the ins and outs of that, but certainly one thing that's reminding me is that God listens to prayer. <laughs> God's like, um, Moses is like, God, change your mind. And it says God changed what he was going to do. And he's stooping down to talk to us in human language so that we can understand uh, him. But he's definitely telling us prayer matters. Prayer matters. A third way we're called to love and serve as church members is by partnering together to share the gospel with others and defend the faith from those who would attack it. So we often think of elders as having the responsibility to preach and protect the faith. And they definitely do, uh, but, so, uh, but church members need to do the same. Um, look, at the, look at Jude 3 with me, uh, Jude chapter 3. Marta, will you read uh, Jude verse 3? It's not chapter 3, Jude verse 3. You're going to be looking a long time for Jude chapter 3. So what's he pleading with them to do? Contend for the faith. Stand up for the faith. And who is he pleading to do it with to do it? The Judeans. No, he's actually the writer, Jude. He's just writing to a church. So he's telling the church, I'm pleading with you to contend for the faith. So it's our responsibility as church members to take a stand for the faith. Look at um, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Hian, will you read Galatians 1, 6 through 8 for us? Yeah, and then just read verse 8 for us.
All right, so Paul here is writing to who? He's writing to the Galatian churches, the church, church there. And his expectation is, my goodness, I, I'm shocked that you're leaving the gospel, that you're departing from the gospel, which means you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility as church members to not be fooled, to hold on to the truth, to stand up for the truth. 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 15. Evan, will you read 1 Peter 3, 15? Yeah, so Peter here is talking to believers. He's talking to slaves and talking to uh, husbands and wives and everyday believers. And what's he commanding them to be ready to do? He's commanding them to be ready to make a defense, really, um, to be able to explain the reason they have hope and to do it in a way that uh, is appropriate with gentleness and respect. And so we as church members, one of our jobs is to share the gospel and stand up for the gospel as a church and as a believer. And what, if that's going to happen, needs to be true of us. If we're going to share the gospel and stand up for the gospel, what are we going to have to be able to do? Yeah, we have to know the gospel well enough to be able to explain it well to someone, and we need to be able to defend it from those who are attacking it. And so in our Aspire class, uh, the leadership class, we've talked about three different levels of doctrine in a, in a sense. You could talk about one level of doctrine in the Bible is uh, if you don't believe that, you're damned. Another level would be truths you might disagree with others about, but you're both Christians, and yet it would be hard to be part of the same church. Um, and then a uh, third level would be disagreements on issues where you both could be part of the same church. And as believers, uh, we all, absolutely all of us, need to be able to stand up for first-level doctrines and uh, defend those. So what would be some examples of that, first-level doctrines? One would be the deity of Christ. So like every single one of you, if I, I'm not going to do this today, or otherwise you'll all avoid me, but if I like stood at that door there on the way out, I'm like, Defend the deity of Christ. Pretend I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Defend the deity of Christ to me right now. You should all be able to do that. It might not be, you know, super polished or anything like that, but you should have a couple specific passages, a couple specific principles to be able to defend the de deity of Christ to me. Uh, the Trinity. I know that's hard, <laughs> hard to explain, um, but you should be able to give a good explanation of what the Trinity means. Um, you, and, and, and why you believe the Trinity. Justification by faith alone, you know. Uh, last week, Isaiah gave an explanation of justification by faith alone. You should be able to explain what is the difference between what Protestants believe about justification by faith alone and what, is the, and what Catholics believe about justification by faith and actually every other religion. <laughs> so uh, what, what is significant? Why is the word alone significant? Where would you go in the Bible to, uh, to defend that or to explain that? Every single one of you should be able to do that. Like, it should be so in you that if I call you at 3 a.m. in the morning, I'm like, justification by faith alone. Bang. You're like preaching it. Uh, the authority of Scripture. Why, why do we believe Scripture is the word of God? 
that's one I, I, that you should, be able to, you should be able to have some reasons for. This is why I trust the scripture. So if we're going to be able to uh, defend the gospel as a church, uh, we need to know it well enough, and especially these first-level doctrines. And then two, and you know one thing that helps with some of that stuff is are the creeds. Like if you just memorize some of the old creeds, we read the Nicene Creed last night as a family, and actually the Nicene Creed is really explaining um, the deity of Christ. It also talks about the deity of the Holy Spirit. And then usually in those creeds, they'll give some proof texts that you can look up on your own, but they give really good, simple explanations. Some of you are good memorizers, and so a good creed would really help you with that, or a good catechism. Two, if we're going to stand up for the gospel, we need to take attacks on the gospel seriously and see them really as attacks on Christ and attacks on his people. And so this is a big temptation nowadays is to treat the truth as if it were something small. And so if someone's just going around punching another person, we would probably be like, okay, this is not good. Like, you, you probably should stop punching them. And then maybe we would try to get involved or call the police or something. But if someone's telling another person a lie about Jesus, do we take it with the same kind of seriousness? Um, the way we respond to false teaching is connected to our love for Jesus and our love for others. Some of us get a little more upset about, like, Starbucks messing up our coffee order than we do about false teaching. And so that's a problem. <laughs> uh, uh, a fourth way we're called to love one another as church members is by working hard at maintaining unity. And, of course, there are lots of passages that talk about the importance of unity. Uh, but here are a couple of my favorites, and these are not really addressed just to elders, actually. They're addressed to the whole church. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through uh, 4. How about Michael Chan? Will you read Ephesians 4, 1 through 4? Yeah, and we could, one, one, one keeps going there with our, what we believe. But he's saying, man, I've just told you this great big plan of God for the church. Now I want to plead with you, please walk in a manner worthy of that. And what does that look like? Basically, uh, pursuing unity. And that's a, a big theme of Paul's. You know, you could look at Philippians chapter 2, where he's basically like, if there's anything true about Christianity at all, <laughs> um, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And you know there are lots of other passages like Romans 14, 19, 2 Corinthians 2. But why do you think uh, unity among believers might be so important? Like if you were going to say to somebody, uh, this, the Bible makes a big deal out of this. Like every book talks about it. Um, what, what would be a reason you would give that it's so important you work hard at unity as a church member? Yeah. So it's like in this world that's full of storms, you're coming into this place where there's not supposed to be 
storms. It's like a little haven of rest. It's so, and peace. It's supposed to be so different than the chaos out there in the world that you walk outside, inside, you're like, whoa, something just happened. It's not raining in here, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's warm. It's, uh, it's a way that we show the world that we are different. And it uh, certainly would be different if we're unified because, man, in the world, uh, it doesn't take much for there to be conflict. Any other reasons? Yeah. Yeah, Caroline. Right, it definitely does. It definitely does because uh, we're going to have to put up with a lot <laughs> to be unified, actually. And uh, it's a way of saying, Jesus, normally I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't. I would be like, hey, but for you, I'm. I'm. You matter more than what I like right now. I wrote down a couple. It reflects how God designed the world to be and how He's going to make it. So like in the Old Testament, the uh, believers keeping the, or the Jewish people keeping the Sabbath was so important because it was a sign, like God's plan is still on. Like, hey, the Sabbath means rest and shalom. We, we're, we're the people God's going to use to bring shalom to the world. And so we keep the Sabbath as a sign. God's still doing what, he's, what he planned to do. And uh, us being unified is like a sign. This is God's... The way God made the world was not for us to fight with each other all the time. And this is, heaven is a world of love. And so we want to give the world a picture of where God's taking it. As believers, we are one. So to not act like we're one is schizophrenic or something like that. You know, if you see a, a person walking down the street punching himself in the face, you're like, that's weird, right? Um, and as believers, we are one. Like, so if we're not working at unity, uh, we're like a body punching itself in the face. It's a fruit of love. So saying we love each other without pursuing unity is kind of a contradiction. It's so unique. The kind of unity we can experience as Christians is ultimately impossible in the world. Also, the damage disunity does to the cause of Christ. You know, it doesn't take... Um, it, it does. It, it's, if believers are acting like unbelievers in their relationship with one another, it, it's just so easy for people to be like, well, forget the gospel then. Um, and then also unity is important because how many other sins are the result of disunity? So it's not like just this one sin, but it, it's a whole tangle of sins. And so if unity is so important, what are some ways that believers, members, church members, can pursue unity? Let me uh, read four steps that John Owen gives. He says, pray for it, labor by prayer and faith to have our hearts and spirits thoroughly seasoned with that affectionate love. Uh, so pray. Do you pray for unity? Carefully observe in ourselves or others the first beginnings of strife. So this is so important. Like, pay attention to your relationships. And so if there's something that's going on and you're not able to overlook it, so some of us were like, I am so strong. I'm just going to overlook. I'm going to overlook. I'm going to overlook. But we're not really overlooking. We're going home and we're thinking about it. We're avoiding that person all that stuff. If you're doing that at the beginning, if you're starting to have thoughts, you're like, I'm not bitter, but I hate them, stuff like that. If you're doing that, um, that is like, okay, you're not able to overlook it, <laughs> okay? So it would be good if you maybe you could overlook it, but clearly you're not. It's impacting your relationship. So at the beginning, don't wait like five years and be like, 
I have overlooked it for five years. Don't wait five years. At the beginning, just go and like be like, you know, you're standing on my foot here uh, when you talk to me. Uh, it might help me a little bit if you don't stand on my foot while we talk. So just talk about it and be like, you know, I don't know if I can even find a Bible verse exactly, but this is really um, when you shout in my ear when you're talking, that's kind of annoying to me. I should be better, but uh, it's kind of a little bit annoying. Would you mind not, um, not shouting in my ear? Or like, I have sunburn, you hug me, kind of hurts, uh, sorry. But so at the beginning, when you start to see I'm having a difficult time overlooking, humble yourself, <clears throat> be, talk to the person about it, and then if, if you have to, if you can overlook it, great, 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 great. One thing that I, I sometimes think is, you know, I'm not able to spend as much time with everybody as I would like, because I'm just a human being, one person, you know? If I spent a lot of time with that person, I probably would give them a break, actually. Uh, but because I don't get to spend a lot of time with them, it seems, it seems more intense when I see them just for a couple minutes. So what I try to do is be like, uh, if spending a lot of time with them, I, th I think would probably make it easier for me to understand where they're coming from, then I'm just gonna trust that and give them a break. And then if I find out after spending a lot of time with them that uh, it's, it's, it's really an issue, then I'll talk more specifically to them about that. But not everybody's that same way. If it's, if it's uh, really difficult for you, just feel free to, to go to someone in a loving way and be like, okay, this is a little hard. That's better than holding on to it for like 10 years and it just piling on. Piling on, but look at the beginning. I'm going too long on that one. Look at the beginning of strife. Work hard at applying yourself to the removal of the first appearance of divisions. And if you can't, uh, ask for help. And then daily strike at the root of all dissension by laboring for universal conformity to Jesus Christ. So this is a daily, daily work. Now maybe I can make this a little more practical. One of your jobs as a church member is to pursue unity by putting up with other members' weaknesses, failings, problems with meekness, patience, pity, and a, and a willingness to help, which is the opposite of how we're trained to act. So one thing about a church, so the church is kind of a funny place because we have such high expectations for our relationships here in church, right? So it's like the church is supposed to be this amazing place filled with grace, but you know what? If we are an amazing place filled with grace, what's going to happen? We're going to be a very difficult place <laughs> filled with people who mess up. Because you know what happens when you show grace is people who need grace come. <laughs> and people who need grace need grace. They do things that are not exactly what you would like them to do. Uh, if, if, we're, if we're not a place of grace, then we can kind of make it easier because we only have four people in here, or you actually only end up having yourself, you know, <laughs> keep everybody out, and boy, my life is so peaceful, and I'm just so, you know, when somebody's like single, they're like, I'm the most loving person there ever was. I, I always uh, treat myself well. But then another person comes like, whoa, I'm so, I'm so selfish. But a church is like, we're supposed to be at this place filled with grace. That means we're like, hey, come on in. You know, we're a hospital. And when we're a hospital, people are bleeding all over us, and we're like, oh, man, it's a little messy in here. And so if we're going to be a place filled with grace, 
and really uh, pursue unity, that means we have to learn to put up with uh, people for a long time that we don't really always like what they're doing. And sometimes they're doing wrong things, which is different. We're trained basically, I think, nowadays, well, on the internet to attack people who are difficult and then like in when we see them to kind of ignore them. But God's calling us to be different. Um, and there's just so many passages. I, I hope I wrote them down for you, but uh, I have five minutes. Ephesians 4, 32, or 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 and and two, this is a, just a great passage as he's talking about disagreements in the church. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. I appreciate this uh, quote by John Owen. Do you want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? then know this, meekness, patience, forbearance, like suffering long. That's another word for patience. Do you, I love that word, long suffering. It's like it doesn't take a lot of work to unpack. Where did that come from? Suffering for a long time, that's patience. Hiding, covering, removing of offenses are the footsteps of Christ. Do you see your brother fail? Pity him. Does he continue in it? Earnestly pray for him, admonish him. Cannot another sin but you must sin too? It's <laughs> a great line. Maybe it's in old English, but you can read it yourself. Cannot another sin, but do you really have to sin just because they sinned? If you be angry, vexed, rejoice, rejoice, I don't know why he puts that there, but if you be angry, vexed, alienated from, you are a partner with him in evil instead of helping him. Suppose your God should be angry every time you give him reason to be angry and strike you down every time you provoke him. When your brother offends you, do but stay your heart until you take a faithful view of the patience and forbearance of God towards you. So like, if your brother offends you, chill out until you remember how merciful God is, and then consider his command to you to go and do likewise. Let then all tenderness of affection and bowels of compassion toward one another be put on amongst us as becomes saints. Let pity not envy, mercy not malice, patience not passion, Christ, not flesh, grace, not nature, pardon, not spite or revenge, be our guides and companions in our conversations. So what do we do as church members? What's your job? Pursue unity by being super patient. A fifth responsibility uh, is don't compromise with the world. A more positive way of saying it would be uh, pursue holiness. And so you're not holy just for yourself. You're holy for other people, too, and for the glory of God, but you're also holy for other people. And um, Owen does a cool thing here. He talks about the responsibility of a church member to separate from evil, to, to live a separate, set-apart life. And he looks at passages like Ephesians 5, 8, and 11. You can look at them on your own. 2 Corinthians 6, Proverbs 14, 1 John 1, 6. So there's a sense in which we're called to separate from the world so that we can better care for one another. But obviously, when we say be separate from the world, we don't mean 
we stop caring for the good of their souls, we don't mean if we're related to them and they're unbelievers, we stop spending time with them. We don't mean we don't spend any time with unbelievers or do business with them. We don't mean that we don't desire their good. We don't mean that we don't do them good. What do we mean? We mean that we resist being conformed to them. Uh, we do mean that we don't participate within, with them in some of the things they talk about and enjoy. And that sometimes we even stand up and expose the wicked things for what they are. So what, as a church member, one of your responsibilities is to stay away from being contaminated by the way the world thinks and the way the world acts, to live a separate, set-apart life. Of course, holiness is more than just staying away from certain conversations or relationships or podcasts or you know, TV shows or songs. It also involves pursuing obedience to God in every area of our life. And we could talk about that for a long time, but as a pastor, uh, I've often been told one of the most important things you can do for your congregation is to be holy. And uh, you should think that way as a church member. You're like, what should I do? Be holy. That's one of the most important things I can do for my church is to live a holy life. And that's a big way you can be a blessing to others and advance the cause, cause of Christ. Okay, finally, I'm just going to say this one basically. Uh, a sixth way you are called to love other members is to have a lot, a lot of conversations with them about spiritual things. So talk a lot about the Bible with other members of the church and about Jesus and what God's teaching you. And then more, to be more specific, you have a responsibility to get into other people's lives and help them be godly. So we've talked a lot about discipleship the past year, and sometimes people still are like, what is discipleship? And there's more to say, I know, but hear me now, okay? So I'm going to say this really clearly. Maybe we can even memorize it sometimes. When we talk about discipleship, what we mean is having lots and lots of conversations with other people in which you want to help them know Jesus and be more like Jesus. So that's it. You're sitting there with another person, and you're thinking, how do I speak in a way that helps this person move forward in their relationship with Jesus? You're discipling. Bang. That's what you're doing. And we've tried to put some structures in place to help you do that, and those structures are there to help. But I think the best way, the dream here at CBC, is not structures, actually, as much as us having this kind of culture. And that starts with you recognizing this is one of my biggest jobs as a church member. Get to know other people. When I'm with them, be thinking, how do I help them be more like Jesus? John Owen points out three ways these kinds of conversations can happen. I said I was just going to go through this quickly, but I can't do it. Uh, three, three ways you can edify other believers. One is just ordinarily, he says, just in your daily conversations, talk about Jesus. In, with a goal to edify somebody else. And don't waste the opportunities you have. And so that's the culture I'm talking about. But he says the second way, occasionally. So ordinarily, just your everyday conversations, occasionally, if anything of weight and concern to the church be brought forth by God's providence, think about how you can address it. And that's more like I'm having a conversation with you and something comes up and I'm like, whoa, we need to talk more about this. And we make a plan together to focus on that issue. If that happens, you know, the temptation is to be like, 
somebody just dropped a bomb there or something you're concerned about, the temptation is to be like, ooh, can we all just ignore that? And how can I get out of this conversation without, without like, him knowing that I noticed that he just said that? Because <laughs> I know it's going to get messy if I actually try to, try to address that. But th pray that God helps us be a little more, uh, I would say brave, but a little more trusting that we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God and take a step. And then third, a third way we do this is by just assembling more together by appointment for prayer and instruction from the word. And that's probably more like our transformation groups, actually. Uh, but those are a few of your responsibilities as a church, as, as a member. You have a job. We don't want to make the job more complicated than it is. We don't want to overcomplicate church. Um, but we do want to help you do it, and that's why we put some of these structures in place, but really, those structures are not the heart. What's key is us understanding and being committed to fulfilling our responsibilities as a member of the church, and if we're doing that, we're fine without much structure, actually, and what's the job? It's this, love by showing up, by praying, by partnering together for sharing the gospel, standing up against error, pursuing unity, not compromising with the world, pursuing holiness, and talking a lot with other believers and having spiritual conversations where you're discipling one another. And there's more. Owen mentions bearing one another's burdens, giving financially to the poor in the church, continuing to believe. So you realize just by persevering in faith, you're doing your job as a church member, <laughs> holding on to the gospel. That's, that's part of your job. Hold on to the gospel. You're doing a big thing. <laughs> uh, by God's grace, he's enabling you to do that. Refuse to show partiality is another a responsibility we have as a member. I'm sure you have others. Um, but in all this talk about responsibility, uh, remember, this is not uh, just a, a, a responsibility. It's also a privilege. And one reason it's a privilege is because Jesus loves the church. Ephesians 5, I often think about Ephesians 5, where he calls on us husbands to um, show the world the love of Christ through the way we love our wives. But sort of fundamental to that is Christ really loves the church. So all we're doing is illustrating. And uh, the way hus a good husband loves his wife is supposed to be an illustration of something bigger, which is Christ's love for the church. And so if you love the church, you're loving what Christ loves. And this is, these are some ways to do it. Thanks, guys. Any questions? Uh, I'm always around. <laughs>